Well, let's let's go on here. Take your Bibles open into First John chapter three, and we are so thankful to be able to come back to our study of First John tonight. Uh, three weeks ago, I had the uh, great opportunity to go to the Shepherd Conference at John MacArthur's church in Sun Valley. And I really do enjoy going there just to hear the, the great preaching from the Word of God. And what I like most about, most about those conferences is the Bible exposition that you get from the sermons. It's just a really a great help to me. Uh, for too long, I had been attending the revved-up, e- emotional type of conferences that really work more on your flesh than they do on, on your spirit. And so uh, the preaching there a lot of times is posturing and a lot of yelling. And when you get down to the end, you realize you didn't actually get very much that would feed you. And there are many people who think that a good preacher is one who can tell you jokes and is able to wander from side to side on the, on the platform. And you have to move your head all around and watch where he's going all the time. And uh, so the presentation is the thing that people think, well, that's the most important thing about preaching, and that's what people think a lot today. But for 1,900 years of church history, preaching the Word of God was never taught that way. It was never taught that way. But in the, about the middle of the 20th century, Billy Sunday came along, and this is actually true. He, he started doing backflips off the stage, and... From that time, it seems people started to be imitators of that style of preaching, and that's what you find a lot today. But the central part of preaching is the Word of God. It's not the presentation of it. The Apostle Paul depended on the Word of God to speak to people's hearts through the Holy Spirit, and he depended upon that, on the Word, to bring people to faith in Christ. He wasn't a powerful orator. He said that many considered that his bodily presence was weak and his oratorical skills were lacking. But today, preachers are measured by those kinds of things. They're measured by the histrionics and the storytelling and the life applications and rather than just simply speaking the Word of God and telling what it means. And so that's what I like about going to the Shepherds Conference. The focus is not the man. The focus is on the preaching, on the Word of God. And those men preach their messages, and they exposit the truth of Scripture in its context. And that's what I think preaching is all about. And so rather than modeling my preaching after comedians and entertainers, I just want to tell you what God's Word means. And I'm content to do that. And most of the application of the sermons is found right here in the Scriptures. And the Holy Spirit will communicate to your heart what he wants you to know. And before I go on from that, another interesting part about preaching, uh, much of the time when you preach a message, I have no idea who the preaching is going to affect. I mean, I I don't come into the pulpit with usually, well, I won't say 100% of the time, but most of the time I don't come in the pulpit with any one particular person in mind. But I leave the pulpit many times thinking how disappointed that I am that I preach such a stinker sermon. And I, I worry about that sometimes, and I worry that the message didn't have the effect that it ought to have. But then I find out that somebody got a blessing out of the message, and they'll go out and tell me it was exactly the message that I needed. And so much of the time when a preacher leaves the pulpit and he's worried about, well, how good of a job did I do, then it's really the pride of performance that he's worried about, and I'm as susceptible to that as anyone. And so I have to remind myself that all that I'm required to do when I come up here is to preach the Word and do that alone, and then the Holy Spirit will take that and use it as he sees fit. Now that brings me to our text this evening, 
because studying the Word of God is what I do to try to bring to you. And uh, really, studying God's Word is my recreation. You, All of you folks, you go to work because you have an occupation, and I go to work because it's my recreation. But don't tell me that because of that you can't have any time off because uh, sometimes I need a break from my recreation so I can take one of those dreaded vacations. So, uh, well, look here, 1 John chapter 3, verse number 11. 1 John 3, verse number 11, it says, For this is the message that ye have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren." But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now, as you know, if you were here for the last message, we moved on in this section of Scripture to another one of John's test of true faith versus false faith. Now, the previous section that we've just studied was a very pointed argument on the incompatibility of sin with the Christian life. And there was a double emphasis in that section, verses 4 through 7 and 8 through 10, that were a moral test of Christianity. And so John's intention here is to leave us with irrefutable arguments that sin is utterly incongruous with Christianity. And so that when a person becomes a Christian, his life will change, and it's not not a change that's brought about about the, by the individual. We don't give people the gospel and, and say, well, what you have to do is clean yourself up and get yourself ready and do everything that needs to be done. Then God is going to save you. But God save you and saves you, and by his power, the individual life begins to change. The Holy Spirit works in you, and that is the process of the sanctifying power of God's Spirit. And if you have a person that claims to be a Christian and that that working of the Holy Spirit is not in his life, the sanctification is not ongoing, then you know that that person never really was saved. Well, in this section, the, the argument switches to another test, and this is the social test. A Christian's life will be characterized by love. John's already spoken about this in the second chapter, verses 8 through 10. He says, again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. We notice in our text that we've started with tonight, he says, this is the message you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. And that's the new commandment that he's talking about in the, in the second chapter. But it's new in the sense that what Christ has done with it is to expand the Old Testament teaching of it about loving your neighbor. And he gives us the right sense of what that passage meant. 
And so from the very beginning of their faith, this was taught. This was an essential part of their faith. It is a defining part of Christianity. So that if a person doesn't know about love, and he doesn't have that love in his heart, then he can't be a true Christian. Now, in our last lesson, we called this the axiom of truth. And that is that Christianity never departs from its key component, truths. Christian truth is unchanging. And so if there is a principle that's been set down by Christ in the Word of God and are given to us by the apostles, then that principle is never going to change. And so the axiom of truth in Christianity is that there is no new truth. Nothing is going to abrogate the original truth that was given through Christ and the apostles, and nothing is ever going to be added to that original truth. And so if there's someone who comes along and they have a new doctrine and it's not found in Scripture, if they come along with some of the revelation and they said, I got this from God, then the Bible teaches that we are to reject that immediately. God does not have any new truth. And the components of our faith, of our Christianity, are found only in the 66 canonical books of the Old and the New Testaments. That is our rule of faith and practice, and we draw our faith and practice from no other source. Well, now that that's clearly established by John, he goes on and begins to argue from Scripture for this incontrovertible truth and important point of love. True Christians will possess the love of Christ, and that love will be evidence in their life. So how is he going to prove that? Well, it's an interesting way, I think. We've already seen it. He doesn't deviate from his proven tried method, and John's method is always to provide contrast, very clear and understandable contrast, black and white contrast. That's always his method. So we seem talking about light versus darkness and sin versus righteousness and truth versus lies. And once again, he comes back here in this section with a very black and white argument, and it's love versus hate. We started last week on the negative side because that's the way that John started his argument. So we we talked about the wickedness of hate. And we got started just a little bit into it last time. Uh, Didn't get much of a chance to get into it. But there's going to be a huge contrast here developed between Satan and Christ, between his character and Christ's character, and between his offspring and Christ's offspring. And there's a very marked difference between the two. And if somehow someone comes along and says, I am a Christian, but they still look like they're Satan's offspring, then you can write it down, that person doesn't know Christ. So in verse 11, he says, For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Now let's start where John starts, and that's the problem of hate and the person who is responsible for hate. And who is that? Well, that's the prince of hate. The prince of hate is the one who is described here as the wicked one. In John 12, verse number 31, Jesus called him the prince of the world. So who is he? Well, we all know him because he's that adversary. His name is Satan. He's the arch enemy of God. He is against God. And because he is against God, he is also against God's people. And the only way that Satan has to wound God, if you want to put it that way, the only way that he can wound God is to harm God's people. So hatred is something that stems from the wicked one. 
And I don't think we need to spend a lot of time further developing Satan's character because the Bible says he's a beast, he's a slanderer, he is the adversary, he's a serpent, he's the wicked one, he is a liar, the evil one. Everything that is against God can be rolled into the expression of his character and he is Satan, the prince and power of the air. And so if hatred is something that's wicked, Satan possesses it. And all those that are spiritually born from Satan have his character. Jesus said to the Pharisees, ye are of your father the devil. And why did he say that to them? Because they acted like the devil. They lied like him. They, they, they lived like Satan. They loved like Satan. And he said, well, how do you love like Satan? Well, the answer to that is no love at all because there is no love in Satan. And people who act like him and have that character are of the devil. So that's the underlying argument that's established here. Over and over in John, he's going to go through this. Um, It's in the previous section, and there he talked about this contrast, people who break the commandments, they're of the devil. If you're unrighteous, you must be from the devil. If you don't love people, if hatred is in your heart, then you're following the prince of hate. Well, now John's going to illustrate that with verse number 12, and he goes back to the earliest example of hatred. And the sin that he's going to talk about here is murder. And there is no greater example of hating someone than to take a person's life. So next we have then the prototype of hate. And if you want to put another P word in there, you could call it the perpetrator of hate. And the perpetrator is this person called Cain. Now always when Cain is mentioned, forever and forever, his name will be associated and is associated with murder. And that's the worst form of hate. Now, Cain knew that. He knew that he was going to be associated with that for all of his life. And so he complained to God. He said, I shall be a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that all who find me will try to kill me. So what is the worst-case scenario for acting out of hatred? Well, it would be to do what Cain did. He murdered. And his crime was the worst kind of murder because he didn't kill his worst enemy. He didn't kill somebody who was trying to harm him or someone who hated him, but he killed his own brother. I mean, the very one that he should have loved is the one that he killed. Now, think about that for just a moment because everybody on earth at that time was a close relative of Cain. Either it's his mom or his dad or his brother or his sisters. And there you get the answer to your question, you know, where did Cain get his wife? Well, it had to be his sister. That's all there was. So if he had murder in his heart and he was going to kill somebody, the only choice that he has, he's going to kill somebody in his own family. And I want you to think about it a little bit harder again, because John here is not dealing so much with our love for lost people, not lost people out there in the world somewhere. He's dealing with love for the brethren. And you'll notice he taught that, that in verse 16, that this is who he's talking about. So if you are a Christian who has no love for the brethren, it's like killing somebody that's in your own family. And doesn't that make the crying doubly worse? I mean, it's incompatibility with sin. And this sin of hate is so incompatible, so incongruous with Christianity that it's impossible for a person to hate others and to be a Christian. So you can't do anything worse than to kill somebody. So John now is going to take us right down into the depths of depravity of human heart. And he's going to use an example here that puts unloving people in a category with those who are of the devil and are murderers. And in the next message, we're going to talk a little bit more about that aspect of it. So what about Cain? Who who is Cain? What, What about him? Well, 
was Cain some totally reprobate, filthy idolater? Was he an atheist? Is that what made Cain the way that he was? Well, there weren't any atheists then. There weren't even any idolaters then. We, we don't see idolatry until you get over to Genesis chapter 11 in the beginning of the Babylonian Empire, uh, Bab, the, the city that Nimrod built. So Cain was a worshiper of one true Jehovah God, or at least he said that he was. And at one time, God, at that time still, God was speaking to people in a very personal way. When Cain killed his brother Abel, God came to him and spoke to him, and he said, where is your brother? And Cain said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? So Cain knew God. He, he conversed with God. He worshiped God. Now, it wasn't true worship. It wasn't worship because he was born again. But you might say this, that Cain was a guy who looked like a worshiper of God, and he went to church and sat in the same pew with Abel. And this is what we're trying to find out. Who is it that says they're Christians and they're not really Christians? But Cain is a murderer. He was a religious murderer, in fact. And there are plenty of those, aren't there? And you can go back in the history of Christianity and you can find a lot of religious murderers. There are many, many, many murderers in the Roman Catholic Church and millions of people were killed at the hands of Roman Catholicism. Even some of the popes were, were personal murderers because they killed people that tried to take their papal power away from them. And then we think about religious murders like, like Islam, for instance, that blessed, peaceful religion that our government tells us that we really don't need to be worried about. But who was the founder of that religion? It was a murderer. Mohammed was a murderer. Now, you think about these suicidal Muslims and somebody who fly, flies a, an airplane into the World Trade Center. I mean, what do you think about a person like that? Uh, is he a, what is he? He's a murderer. He, he kills innocent people. That's nothing short of murder. They call it warfare, but the Bible calls it murder. And I want to show you how we know that. Remember when Jesus was nailed to the cross? You know what the Bible called that act? Stephen told the Jewish Sanhedrin what God thought about it. This is what he said in Acts chapter 7, verse 51 and 52. He said, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your father perse fathers persecuted? And they have slain them, which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have now been the betrayers and murderers. Now, what were these, these Jews doing? Well, they were acting out of devotion, weren't they? They were acting out of devotion to their twisted, perverted religion where they claimed that they had a relationship with the one true God. And Stephen didn't call that an act of war. He called it murder. And so this is Cain. He's a worshiper of God, but he'd invented his own way of doing it. I don't have a doubt in my mind that Cain knew exactly what God required of him. Adam and Eve taught him well. Um, when a sacrifice was told to be brought, Abel brought a sacrifice. And there's no reason why Abel would have ever thought of going and killing one of his flock and, and giving it to God unless God had already told him that that's what he required. So Cain knew as much about this as Abel knew. He wasn't innocent in it, but he was obstinate. So he wanted his own way. He wanted his own religion. He wanted to do his own thing. And what is that? Well, that's nothing short of the activity of the devil. He is of the evil one. 
Now, we'll notice something here about the word evil in verse number 12 because this is very important. In First Peter, Peter says, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Now, in that passage, and the one that we're looking at tonight, the word evil comes from two different Greek words. And the word that we have evil here in in First John is not the same as First Peter, and this one is a means a particularly spiteful and aggressive form of evil. It's determinate evil. It's like being so bad that you're not content just to to perish alone and to go down in your own corruption, but you are so bad that you want to take others down with you. And if you look at the character of Satan and what the Bible says about him, he's exactly that way. You watch him throughout his career, you get down to the end, as we're going to be studying here soon in the book of Revelation, and you'll find there that he gets thrown into the bottomless pit. And he was thrown there because he's evil. Why? Well, because he killed through the Antichrist, murdered God's people. But then at the end of the millennial reign, God lets him loose for a little while, and you know what he does? He goes back out and he deceives the nations. Now, by that time, Satan surely has to know that his last attempt is going to be this one. And so he deceives people again. So he's not content to go down by himself. He's going to take a whole lot of people with him. And that's the way John describes the evil that's in Cain's heart. This was not a heated moment of passion. It was not that Cain got upset and he just went a little off. He went crazy. We're talking here about premeditated murder. He planned it, and he was just waiting for the opportunity. And when the opportunity came, and he had Abel out there in the field, he had the motive, he had the old sinful heart, hateful heart that he had, and so with that opportunity, he killed his brother. Now, some of you might be interested in the method that Cain used to kill his brother. I remember watching a movie on television once, and this was about... Cain and Abel, and in this movie, Cain took a big rock, and while Abel wasn't looking, he came up and he smashed him in the back of the head with that rock, crushed his skull. In one of the Jewish targums, it says, he fixed a stone in his forehead and slew him. And then there are others that say that he took a rock and he crushed his diaphragm. Was that how he killed him? Did he shoot him with an arrow? Did he hang him from a tree? Did he lynch him? Well, the scripture says here, in Genesis, it says in Genesis 4.8, it says, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel his brother, and slew him. So Cain and Abel were talking, and Cain, I suppose, was acting like there was nothing wrong. And so the Bible says he just got up there behind him and he slew him. John Gill says that Cain was talking to Abel in a friendly manner. So they weren't arguing. Cain didn't challenge Abel to a duel or anything like that because... Uh, Abel would have never done that. So Cain was talking to him in a friendly way, and he coaxed him out into the field, and they were walking along, and he slew him. So how did he do it? Well, MacArthur has an interesting note on this. He says that the word here means to butcher by cutting his throat. And the word is one, the same word that's used for the standard method of slaughtering animals for sacrifice. And that's to slit the throat, to cut the, the jugular vein so that the animal bleeds out. Now, I think that's kind of ironic because you think about that and you can almost see the fire in Cain's eyes as he comes up behind Abel and he says, God wants an animal for sacrifice? 
I'll give him a sacrifice. I'll give him you. I'll give him an animal sacrifice. And so his killing was sort of a human sacrifice. And it wasn't to please God, but it was to honor his own lust and passions. And those things came right from his father, the devil, who is the wicked one. Now, you see how deep this thing is going here, uh, how terrible what Cain did. And, and we're going to get back to this, but that, that's what God, what John here is, is comparing the person who says that he is a Christian and doesn't love other Christians. This is how deep this thing is going. So we notice then in verse number 12 the reason for it, because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. And that's typical of the unregenerate. People that are evil hate people that are not like them. And so whenever a Christian does rightly in the presence of unbelievers, what do they do? What do unbelievers do? They begin to persecute true believers. So hatred brings persecution. That's the next thing I want to talk to you about, the persecution of hate. Now, is there a good reason why Christians should be hated and persecuted? Is it because Christians go along, go out, beat the stuffing out of people? I mean, do 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 Christians manipulate others, and do we do we are we prejudiced against others, and so we beat people down? Is that why people hate Christians? Who was it that started hospitals? Who was it that began orphanages? Those things were begun by Christian people. Here's an interesting little factoid for you. Some of you have probably heard of George Mueller, who was a, a great, compassionate Christian evangelist in the 19th century. And he was really a great example of faith and just simple dependence upon God. George Mueller, when, when he was in England in the 19th century, he had 120,000 orphans during his lifetime under his care. And he housed and fed all of those orphans. He took care of them. He took all the money that he had and put it into the ministry. And he never asked anybody to help him. Now, God did help in miraculous ways. Mueller never did ask for any help, but God supplied everything that he needed. And all those orphans, 120,000 of them were housed and fed, and he educated them. And you know what the complaint against George Mueller was? His enemies said that he was educating the poor beyond where they should be in life. Isn't that typical of the unregenerate? I mean, here's a man doing something like that. That's the typical response to anybody who they call a do-gooder. Jesus was crucified. Why? Was it because he murdered somebody? Was Jesus crucified because he kidnapped people's kids? Did he steal from people? Is that why why they crucified him? Well, he was guilty of terminating something. He was guilty of terminating almost every disease that there was in Israel. He healed thousands of people. He cast out devils. Uh, he take, took lunatics and put them into the right mind. He, he comforted grieving people by raising people from the dead. And what did they charge him with? Well, they were left stammering and stuttering over what he must have done wrong. And so they had to hire false witnesses against him to make false accusations. And Jesus told us why they would do this. In John 3, verses 19 and 20, he says, And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. So what's the problem? Persecution actually comes 
to Christian people because of the hatred of Jesus Christ. When light starts to expose evil, when you expose the evil works of darkness, then people are going to hate you. Lost people don't like Christ, and so they don't like you. And Jesus said, don't be surprised by that. They hated me before they hated you. And so if they hate me, they will hate you. John says nearly the same thing in verse number 13. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. And so if you act righteously, you'll be hated. You shine a little light around and you expose some wickedness, then you're headed for trouble. And it was the same thing with Abel. He was righteous. And what did he do with his righteousness? Well, he actually showed his brother Cain up. Not because he was arrogant, not because he was prideful about it, but he showed him up simply because he was living the way that God wanted him to live. And because he did, he was killed for it. Now, there's a little twist to this that I think is very interesting and very well put. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones makes a great comment on this. He says, Neither does the world hate us because we are good. Let us be quite clear about that. The world does not hate good people. The world only hates Christian people. That's the subtle, vital distinction. If you're just a good person, the world, far from hating you, will admire you. It will cheer you. And what is true of the individual is true of the whole church. The psychological explanation is quite simple. The world likes good people because it feels that they are a complement to itself. So the world applauds them. But the world, we are told, hates Christians, not because they're hateful, not because they're good, not because they do good, but specifically because they are Christians, because they are of God, because they have Christ within them. I think this does not need any demonstration. If anyone did good in the world, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. But as I have shown you, the world hated him. It is not goodness. It is this specific thing that makes us Christians that does it. One other words, makes the world hate us. Now, if you want a great illustration of that, and maybe for some of you one that hits a, a little bit close to home, you look at what happens in your own family when you follow Christ. If you happen to be perhaps the only one in your family that's a true Christian, what happens? Well, there's division in the family. Matthew 10, Jesus said, For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Why is that? I mean, when you became a Christian, did you, did you just suddenly become an axe murderer or something? I mean, I mean, did you become a terror in your house? Well, that's not likely, I don't think. In fact, a, a Christian is amazingly improved in multitudes of ways. Charles Spurgeon said that a man's dog ought to be better off when he becomes a Christian. So what's this, what is it that pits you against father and mother and against brothers and sisters, against your, even your own children sometimes? Well, it's nothing less than this, that you have become a Christian. You're born again, and so the world hates you. It's nothing else than that. The world hates Christian people. Now, we go down to verse 15 of our text, and we see the conclusion that's drawn from the wickedness of hate. John says, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. So Cain is our murderous example, and it's quite clear that he didn't have eternal life in him. He wouldn't have killed Abel if he did. If he was righteous, as Abel was righteous, then he never would have killed him. 
And a, and a wonderful thing about Abel, four times in the Bible where it talks about Abel, it says that he was a righteous person. And Cain is the other way. Jude says that the kind of people that get into a church and they have no love in their hearts and those that subvert the doctrines of Christ, you know what he says about them? He says, woe unto them for they have gone the way of Cain. So there's the night and day contrast, the very black and white contrast when it's put into this context. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. So hatred is the same as murder. And those who who hate are put into the same category as Cain. They're put into the devil's category. And they can't in any way be considered Christians. Now I'm going to stop with that tonight. And next time we're going to come back and we'll see what John has to say uh, about why people that hate are murderers. And I hope that you'll think about that a little bit and that you'll be able to make the right connection of why he says that. But here, differences are very clearly noted. And so we know that when a person says that I am a Christian, but they don't have these certain characteristics, then you know that they're not telling the truth. And if we can't tell whether a person is a Christian or not, then we need to stop talking about this right now. We need to just quit all that we've been going through here for months and months now about on this issue, if you can't tell who's a Christian and who's not, let's stop talking about it. But John doesn't stop talking about it. There is a way to tell. And so we're going to keep talking about it too because we need to know those differences. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity you've given us to come here tonight. And we just thank you so much for your word and what we can learn from it. We just pray, Lord, that you would open up our hearts, that we would understand these things very clearly. And as we'll see as we go on with this, that there is really a demand for Christians to examine their hearts, to see if they are really in the faith, to see if the characteristics they should have are all here. And that helps us to know, do we really have eternal life abiding in us? And then we'll also understand at the same time that it's not John's purpose to put continual doubt into our minds but that we will see the characteristics of Christ and then we'll come to the blessed assurance that we have that we are truly our born again believers so we thank you Lord for this study be with our people for we ask this in Jesus name amen let's pray